Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you, and we thank you for downloading this podcast and uh, spending some time with us. Here in Washington, D.C., we are getting ready for something that has not happened here since 1933, and that is a World Series. Joining us today on the Hill, Fred Farmer. He's a author and historian. He's with the Dewey Square Group and a baseball historian here in Washington D.C. Fred, thanks so much for for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, your book, uh, "Gotta Have Heart," um, details Washington baseball history, and it's not a happy history in, in general, is it? No, it's a pretty sad story, with one exception, about a 10-year exception, from 1924 to 1933. Washington won all three of its pennants before, before this year. Um, it's only World's Championship in 1924. That's 95 years ago. Um, but after that, uh, the team really went downhill, uh, wasn't able to put a competitive team on the field, and uh, lost the team, actually wound up moving to Minnesota. And then a new team came around, and they moved to Texas only 11 years after that. Well, people might not realize is that here in Washington, D.C., we had no baseball for decades prior to, to 2005. The Nationals moved from Montreal, Canada, brought the Expos here. Major League Baseball brought them right. here and owned them uh, for a period of time um, and then changed their name to the Nationals and, and began this current incarnation uh, of the team. I just want to start with a here and now in this moment. Describe to people what this feels like as a, a, a baseball aficionado yourself to see something really remarkable. You don't get to see this all the time. You know, a team seemingly created here in 2005, and now here they are in, in the World Series. It's, it's not a common occurrence. No, I mean, you've got, you know, 15 teams in each league, so... You know, you only have a one out of 15 chance in any yeah. given year. Uh, they did a great job, the, the learners, the owners of the team, in building uh, from the ground up. Um, as you mentioned, Major League Baseball owned the Nationals uh, in their first year, first year and a half. The learners bought them in 2016, uh, 2006, rather. Um, and there were some really lean years. I mean, they were a bad team for many years, although in a way that planted the seeds. You know, you had um, two uh, number one draft choices back-to-back -back because the Nationals had the worst record in baseball back-to-back, -back, and that was uh, Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper. Um, and, uh, you know, they put a competitive team together for, for several years, couldn't get past that first round, and they were so bad at the beginning of this season with that 19-31 and 31 start that that makes it even more improbable. People were calling for the head of Davey Martinez, they sure the were. manager. Yeah. That he'd be fired. Right, because he, uh, this is his second year. Last year, I think they were 82 and 80, much uh, below expectations, although by Washington baseball standards, a good year, historical standards. Um, and then they had the terrible start this year, and people thought he wasn't the man for the job. And just an incredible turnaround. I think they went something like 81 and 40 over the last 120 games, um, just a dominant team. And, uh, you know, they seem to be playing with house money right now. They are just so hot that it's going to be a great World Series against the Astros. It's, it's great to walk around the city in a time where the politics here is so divided. 
and you know really so raw that you can have conversations with people that it that are unifying uh, even people who are not from here and are fans of other teams if they live here they they tend to have a, a good feeling and a, 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 a attraction to the nationals even if they have a lifelong allegiance to the Red Sox right. or the Yankees mm-hmm. or some other team. There, there does seem to be this idea that there are a lot of transients in Washington, D.C., but yet the Nationals are something that a lot of people were here for when they arrived, and they have now kind of seen this come full circle. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of fans, uh, as you point out, from other places. Uh, D.C. is a famously transient city, and um, a lot of fans have switched their allegiance to the Nats. Now, some fans have kept with their original team, um, but even for those fans, the, the Nats are invariably the second favorite team. Maybe not for Mets fans, uh, Phillies fans, <laughs> but especially for team fans that root for teams outside the National League East, you know, uh, the Nats are a close second, and I think pretty much everybody in town is rooting for the Nats. Well, I mean, I can tell you my story. I'm a lifelong Yankee fan. This is no secret. I've never tried to hide it or anything like that. But I have all I have a different relationship with the Nationals than I have with any other Washington sports team because I was here. I was at that first game at RFK. I was at the first game at Nats Park. I've, I've watched them grow. And while I would not be as presumptuous to a real diehard year in year out Nationals fan who just lives and dies with them I have always been a supporter of this team because it, it's a different feel about them when you watch this go on in front of you that it, it, it really is special to see yeah um, and you you see it um, manifested all over the city I was at a, a city bus the other day this is the day after they had won the pennant and I saw this woman lugging this giant Nats flag, the kind of flag that you see Screech, the <laughs> mascot, you know. And I, I don't know how she it was bigger than her, but yeah. she was so excited. She had bought it at Walmart that day. She took it to work. She was showing it around, and she just was so into it. I, I, you just see those kinds of things all the time. I was at Game 3 of the NLCS, and the place rocked in a way that I'd never seen it rock, perhaps with the exception of the Steven Strasburg first game, you know, the Strasburg oh, game, yeah. struck out 14 still, guys. Yeah. But even, the, I think, even... Uh, that was exceeded by by the excitement at the stadium. There are very few moments in sports that tend to live up to their pre-game billing, and that night, yeah. Strasburg's debut was such a night. Absolutely, that was electric. Um, and you know, for my own personal rooting interests, if the Nationals were to dispose of the Astros, who just you know beat my Yankees, enemy of my enemy, right? I'm an enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> Nationals were my friend anyway. Let's get into the history. Sure. Uh, Washington, as you have detailed expertly, um, has a very rich baseball tradition. And not only in Major League Baseball, in the Negro Leagues as well, too. Walk us, walk us through that. How far does this go back, baseball and the Nationals, the national pastime in the nation's capital? Well, it goes back uh, to 1859, actually. Um, there were uh, these um, amateur teams that had played uh, early on during the Civil War, uh, one of them was called the Nationals, the other team was called the Potomacs. You had some early incarnations of the Senators and the Nationals as professional teams in the 1880s and 1990s, or a team called the Olympi- Olympics, I believe, or Olympians. But, you know, modern baseball is defined as 1901, when the American League uh, was formed. 
Um, the and Yan- Washington was one of the original teams. Washington was one of the original teams. And the Yankees, the, your Yankees, actually started yeah. up the road in Baltimore. Baltimore Orioles. Baltimore Orioles yeah. for the first two years. Um, and then they became the New York Highlanders. Now, one of the first managers for the uh, – I'm sorry, a pitcher for the uh, Highlanders was a guy named Clark Griffith, um, who wound up becoming the uh, manager of the Senators initially. He bought a minority ownership of the team. And he turned things around. The first 11 years of Washington baseball – uh, in terms of 1901 past, were all losing seasons. He came over, became turned them into a winning season, a winning team right away. But he found that managing wasn't really his specialty. He was really good at putting teams together. So after a few years, he kind of put more of emphasis into the ownership. He bought more of an ownership uh, into the team, and eventually becoming controlling uh, owner. And then he found his, his experiment of different kind of managers. 1924, he hires his second baseman, a guy named Bucky Harris, who's 27 years old, to become players manager. Now. Player managers were not that unusual back then, but a 27-year-old manager was, and it was a really mocked um, decision. Sports writers called it Griffith's Folly, that this young kid would run the team, and the Senators weren't even that good, so the expectations were very low. Uh, The Yankees had won the uh, World Series the year before. In fact, they'd won the three previous pennants, so nobody thought the Senators were going to go anywhere. Well, they have this incredible season. They start kind of like the Nats did this year. They were started out at 24 and 26. Uh, They win five in a row. They go to New York. They sweep the Yankees in a four-game series. All of a sudden, they're in first place. The city goes absolutely crazy for the Senators, and they, I wouldn't say coast. It was a tough battle with the Yankees, but the Senators finally clinched the pennant the second-to-last day of the season up in Fenway Park. So 1924 is the last time Washington won a, won a World Series. Right. Tell us about that. Um, it was an incredible story because— um, People were really sick, uh, no offense, of the Yankees and the New York Giants. People are still sick of the Yankees. And they're still <laughs> sick of New York. I said as a native <laughs> that New Yorker. changed. Yeah. So the Yankees and Giants had been in the three previous World Series. It was almost like a baseball duopoly. And people were kind of tired of seeing the Yankees and Giants, as you would have any two teams. Um, so when the Senators made their move in the, uh, in the summer of 1924, fans across the country really rallied around them, partly because they were the, the underdogs. They hadn't um, ever done anything before. But I would say even more importantly— because Walter Johnson uh, was this aging pitcher for the Senators, so popular, the greatest pitcher probably of that generation, maybe of all time. He was 36 years old. He had never been to the World Series. Uh, there was no playoffs to speak of. It was like you win, the, uh, if you came in first place in the league, that was the playoffs. You go right to the World Series. And so he'd never done that. And so fans across the country really rooted for this guy. He was a nice guy. He'd never done this before. And you'd saw, actually, amazingly, Senators would go on the road and fans would cheer for them against their team. Not only that, at, at Fenway Park, when they clinched the pennant, as I mentioned a minute ago, the second last day of the season, the fans stormed the field. These are Red Sox fans. They stormed the field and they brought Clark Griffith out on the, from the stands onto the field and carried him out. They, it was as if they'd won. Now, partly mm-hmm. they were probably happy because the uh, Senators had eliminated the Yankees. Mm-hmm. The Red Sox hate the Yankees even back then. Uh, <laughs> but I think a bigger part of it was just that they. Uh, they got into this national speed, but they loved, sorry, they were called the Nationals and Senators. Yeah. They got so into that team, they were happy to see the, the Senators get there. And then the Senators were huge underdogs against the New York Giants in the World Series. And again, um, there was a line from the New York Times that said, you know, absent the most uh, rabid uh, New York Giants fan, everyone in the country is rooting for the Senators to pull this <laughs> off. It's amazing. So in a relatively short amount of time, uh, 1924 to 1933, Within a decade, they returned to the World Series in 1933. Well, they actually returned in 25. They, they returned in 25, uh, the last one we had. So 
are we talking about the same team here, essentially, in 25 and 33? 25 was essentially the same team. 23, yeah. 33 was very different. Uh, so Walter Johnson, um, if I could talk about the World Series real quick, in 1924, he loses his first two starts. And people are so sad. And, oh, he's going to go out as this loser. And he's going to, he talks about retiring. And he's just really despondent. And then game seven, um, they were trailing three to one in the eighth inning. They pulled together a rally, um, a bad ball, bounces over the third baseman's head, and they tied the score, 3-3. Pandemonium, fans throw cushions and coats and, mm-hmm. and their hats on the field, and they actually the game had to be stopped for several minutes because people were so excited. But they even got even, hot, even more excited when Walter Johnson comes in from the bullpen to pitch the ninth inning, and he gives up a one-out triple to Frankie Frisch. So he's on the verge of losing his third World Series game. I mean, how sad would that have been? He winds up wriggling out of that jam. The game goes to extra innings, goes to 12 innings, and he actually wins the game in 12 innings. So he goes out. It's incredible redemption. Now 25, it's the mirror image. He wins the first two starts. And the seventh game of the World Series is against the Pittsburgh Pirates in Pittsburgh. It had rained the day before. It was a big mosh of a pit of a field. You know, they didn't have really good drainage back then or mm-hmm. grounds crews. And he winds up giving up, uh, n- I think it was uh, nine runs, only six or so were earned, but he, he kind of got shelled in that game. You know, earlier this past week, uh, we had former WTTG anchor Maury Povich. Oh, sure. Jonas. Yeah. And, you know, Maury uh, was here for years. Obviously, his dad, Shirley Povich, was a, you know, uh, famous Washington Post sports journalist. Uh, press box today at Nationals Park is named after Shirley yeah. Povich. Uh, Maury was talking about Griffith Stadium. Yeah. And about, like, what that aura was about the place and you know for a lot of us who only remember RFK um, I never saw Griffith Stadium so what what was that place and why is it still so revered when you talk to Washington baseball fans who do remember it? This is classic old-time stadium it was built um, you know into a city landscape there was a, a tree um, out beyond center field uh, where Back then, I guess eminent domain laws weren't as easy, and the senators couldn't get the owner to sell that plot of land where the tree was. And so, couldn't um, buy the tree. Couldn't buy the tree or the land where the tree yeah. was. So the tree stood there, and they actually center field had this sort of weird corner that you know navigated around around that tree. The tree was like a, a famous spot for people to meet. You know, no one had cell phones or anything. Right. Uh, so that's where you, I'll meet you at the tree at the game. People would take the trolley up there. There were trolley trolleys in D.C. Um, right field. Uh, was very short. Uh, it was only about 300 feet, maybe less, down the line. But an incredibly high fence, kind of like a mirror image of the Green Monster at Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. So it had a lot of charm. I mean, it, ha- it had its, some drawbacks as well. Um, but the, uh, the senators, when they moved to, wa- to Minnesota, uh, they actually were leaving a, a place that was about to build a new stadium. And mm-hmm. so when the expansion centers came here, they played one season in the old ballpark. Mm-hmm. And then... What's known as RFK Stadium today was called DC Stadium at the time. Right. Was built in nineteen. It was opened in nineteen sixty-one for the Senate. Nineteen sixty-two for the Senators. So let's let's rewind a moment. Sure. So the last time they they are in a World Series is nineteen thirty-three. Right. Uh, and then we enter this period of of dark days for Washington right. baseball, um, losing teams, perpetually losing teams. Um, there's this phrase that enters the lexicon of, of Washington first in war first in peace, last in the American place. And it's funny because it's true. Yeah. Uh, they were not a very good baseball team, and they were kind of uh, beat up on uh, in the American League. How bad does it get 
in those intervening years before they finally decide. And it's Griffith's son who moves them? That's right. Yeah. So let me just go back to the 33 World Series because I think that's the turning point. Um, again, Clark Griffith turns to a young player manager, uh, a guy named Joe Cronin. He was only 26, star shortstop. He marries into the family. He marries Clark Griffith's uh, niece. And a year later, the Senators drop to seventh place, and uh, Clark Griffith trades off Joe Cronin. It's basically a cash deal. He gets $250,000 and some um, inconsequential infielder. And I feel like that is the point where things kind of go south because really Griffith had no choice. It was the Great Depression. He was strapped for money. And unlike a lot of other teams um, who were owned by guys that had other business interests to subsidize a team, he had the centers. That was it. So he really lived and died by that. And so when, when that happened, really, he couldn't put a competitive team on the field after a while because the attendance was down, and then when, when the players weren't as good, then fans stayed away. It became this vicious cycle. So uh, here's an interesting stat. This covers two franchises. From 1946 to 1971, two winning seasons in Washington out of wow. you know, a quarter century. So um, things are really bad in the 50s. Um, they're not drawing well. Uh, they're not playing good baseball. And they're still at Griffith. They're still at Griffith Stadium. Stadium. And Clark Griffith dies in 1955. He would have never moved the team. I mean, he was a Washingtonian through and through, even though he wasn't from here. He was from Missouri. His son, Calvin Griffith, adopted son, um, decides, uh, actually, he tries to move the team to San Francisco, to L.A. He's flirting with all these different places. Um, the American League won't have it there. You know, we want to have a Washington team. Part of that is because they know that Congress will get angry if baseball leaves. You know, baseball has this long-time antitrust exemption, and they're afraid that if Washington leaves, they would yank that away. But in 1961, um, at the end of the 61 season, he gets permission to move the team to Minnesota, and the deal is that Washington gets a new team, an expansion team. Well, the bad deal for Washington— So there's no gap there. There's no gap, right. The bad thing for Washington is that the Senators, as bad as they were, they were about to turn the corner. Um, Within two years, they're a second-place team— by 1965, they're the American League pennant winners. And these are the Minnesota Twins. Minnesota right? Twins. Yeah. In fact, they clinched the pennant at D.C. Stadium against the New Washington Senators, like it's kind of rubbing it in our city's face. And it w- which is amazing about the decision, though, because weren't the plans for the, the D.C. Stadium, which we now know as RFK, already in the works? They were. They moved the team? Yeah, he was moving away from uh, uh, you know this brand-new uh, state-of-the-art stadium, which actually was pretty well-received initially, though not anymore. Um, But he got a great deal in Minnesota. He got um, some great concessions in terms of uh, parking and and TV rights. And uh, they drew very well in Minnesota. Minnesota was a very uh, baseball-hungry town. So um, it worked out actually pretty well for him. But the sad thing is, had they stayed um, with these guys like Jim Cott and um, Harmony Killebrew and some of the superstars, you know, who knows? They they probably would have been a good team in Washington, and maybe they would have never left. That's, so that know. brings us to the second incarnation yeah. of of the Nationals, uh, who we now know as the Texas Rangers. Yeah, uh, they weren't here all that long. Only eleven years. What is their legacy? Uh, pretty horrible baseball. Uh, they uh, mostly came. You know, the first few years mostly last place. In fact, um, in 1964, the team came out with a yearbook, uh, and the the slogan on the front was off the floor in 64. So their, their That's aspiration, the yeah, their aspiration was to just get out of just last place. Just get off the floor. And there were 10 teams. Yeah. So last place was like really last place. And that was before they divided up exactly. the Exactly, yeah. Right. And so they, um, they, they meet that goal. They come in ninth place. <laughs> and um, they're pretty terrible. High. Yeah, it's pretty terrible all, through, all, through all of it. There's one exception. In 1969, and this is when baseball actually expands again and um, goes into two divisions in each league, uh, Ted Williams is hired as a manager. He's no managerial experience. 
um, hadn't really followed baseball for quite a few years. He had retired as a Red Sox, uh, Red Sox player in, um, in 1960. Um, but he had a good feel uh, for the game. Were these, were these the Frank Howard years? These are the Frank Howard years, right. And I have a great story, actually, about Frank Howard. Uh, Ted Williams met with Frank Howard in spring training in 1869. And um, Frank Howard was a slugger, you know, would hit 40 home runs several seasons, but also struck out a ton and hardly ever walked. And so Ted Williams asked Frank Howard, uh, I got a question for you. How does a guy hits 40 home runs, only walks something like, it was like 40 times? I can't remember the exact number. And, um, you know, Frank Howard's, well, you know, uh, like sometimes these pitchers are like UFOs to me. I, you know, I can't, I can't <laughs> identify them. And well, can you take take a hard, take a pitch once in a while? You know, if it's it's a tough slider, it's uh, you know you got your head in the count. Take a pitch. He's like, yeah, I, I could, I can't with one strike at least. But try that. And so he does, and he has a great. He actually walks over a hundred times that year. Doesn't sacrifice any power. Hits something like forty six home runs. I, I can remember when when the Nationals came to Washington. Uh, I was doing a series of stories at RFK. Um, while they were building the field, putting the baseball field back in because the stadium had not been used for anything uh, except for soccer in quite some time. And some, some exhibition baseball games. Ex- a yeah. couple of exhibition baseball games, but it didn't have a regular field in it uh, for baseball. Right. Major League Baseball went in and basically built a, a, a brand new baseball field inside of RFK. And they had kind of given us the run of the, of the place. And I went up to some of the upper deck seats and I searched out those Frank Howard yeah. yellow seats. They had, for those of you not familiar with it, for a good period of time, uh, they would go around the stadium and wherever one of Frank Howard's home runs had landed, they would paint the seat yellow. And you would go up in some of these upper decks. And when you finally traveled all the way up there yeah. and saw the distance the man hit these baseballs, it, it seemed superhuman. It's incredible. The and distances. I have a, another funny story about Ted Williams and Frank Howard about those seats. Um, Ted Williams was on the field during batting practice. Uh, I had a friend in town and got him on the field, and and then Fred friend pointed to the seats in, in you know incredulous tone, like Did Frank Howard really all those seats. Those are the ones. Those are painted. Those are the ones he hit home runs. And Ted Williams says, "Yeah, but you see the other ten thousand seats out there. Those all the times they struck out on me. <laughs> That's probably pretty accurate, actually. So um, we get to nineteen seventy one. And what happens? Why do they leave again? So they, 69, uh, under Ted Williams, they have this uh, winning season, their only winning season of that second franchise. Ted Williams wins manager of the year. In fact, I believe today is the 50th anniversary of him winning that manager okay, of the year. Really? Yeah. Um, so he, um, uh, he does a great job that first year, but the magic kind of wears off after that. He, he doesn't do a very good job in the second and third year. They're back to bad baseball, playing around 400. And the fans who came out in pretty high numbers in 1969 drew over 900,000 people, which is terrible by today's standards, but by back then is actually pretty good, and certainly by, by the standards of Washington baseball. But the crowd started thinning. People aren't coming to the games. And the new, there's a new owner named Bob Short, um, and he uh, decides that he wants a better deal. And um, Bob Hope, actually, at the last minute, tried to buy the team and keep them in Washington, but you couldn't meet Bob Short's asking price. Bob Short wanted $12 million, which is funny. Like, that sounds like nothing now, but back then, yeah. that was a lot. So he, Short can't get, get his asking price met, moves the team uh, to Texas. So, but before that happens, the last game in Washington baseball history before the Expo move here, uh, it's uh, at, at old RFK Stadium, and um, they're playing the Yankees. And uh, this is incredible, sort of like a celebration-slash-funeral you know, fans are unfurling signs that say short stinks and they're angry and everything. 
the Senators actually have a 7-5 to lead in the ninth inning. And so it looks like at least they're going to go out on top. But the fans are just so pent up that they storm the field. And the uh, even though when the PA announcer says, you know, we're going to have to forfeit the game unless you get off, they, they could not restore order. They just go crazy, and the game is forfeited. The Yankees win the game 9-0. It's the forfeit score. It, um, it actually historically probably was a fitting end, though. It was. Because um, uh, what followed it was a, a desert yeah. here, uh, a desert of baseball. Uh, we fast forward to 2004, and almost a very similar situation to what we had seen to the Washington Senators befalls the Montreal Expos. Uh, Major League Baseball owned, had owned and operated the team, and they decide to move to Washington, D.C. Take us to 2005. What is that like when these now new Washington Nationals come to D.C.? And explain to folks, why, why, aren't, they the, why aren't they the Senators again? There was actually some controversy about what to name them. Um, Bud Selig, the commissioner at the time, wanted them to be called the Senators because he liked the old school name. Um, the mayor, Anthony Williams, at the time, who was incredibly instrumental in getting the team here, he wanted the Homestead Grays. That's a Negro League team that you were referring to earlier. Right. Um, so as a compromise, they picked Nationals. <laughs> I think either of other teams' names would have been better. Well, I think Mayor uh, Anthony Williams made a point at the time that the it was tied to DC statehood in some respect because you were named you would we would have been naming a baseball team after something that the voters of Washington that's right. did that's a not great have he, he which was a voting United States senator right he did, he couldn't stomach that and uh, as a Washington resident i totally understand that yeah. um so yeah so the, 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 that's the name they settle on and they uh have an, an incredible uh hold on the city uh, because as you might recall even though they were a pretty bad team they had an incredible first half it was you know, some of it was probably luck. They were really good in one-one games, but there was—it like, was a magical first night. Yeah, they were like fifty-one and thirty, or something like that. They were around twenty games over five hundred in the, f- the first eighty games of the season. Uh, just nobody saw that coming. The second half, they were the opposite. They finished right at five hundred, and after that, they—they're a bad team for a while. But the people were, even if they had been a bad team that first year, I think they would have drawn a lot of fans because people were so excited about a team. I was excited. Um, anybody who's from here, if you're not from here, the old-time fans, the young people, everybody loved having baseball back in now, Washington. Now, I'll spare whatever national fans are, are joining us today by, by having you recount all of the, the near misses and heartbreaks that the Nationals have had in the postseason, especially in the last couple of years. But something did happen in that very first season. In September, they bring up a young guy by the name of Ryan Zimmer. Right. And... Uh, that brings us to today, because Ryan Zimmerman is still on this team. Um, when you look at these Nationals of, of 2019, uh, the Washington Post had a pretty remarkable piece the other day about the original Nationals, uh, the, that first incarnation yeah. of the team. Frank Howard, um, and um, who you know we sadly lost uh, not too long ago. Um, you mean Frank Robinson? Frank right? Robinson, I'm sorry, Frank Robinson. Um, Frank Frank Howard still alive, still alive, still very much with us. Mm-hmm. Probably could still hit on mm-hmm. the yellow seats. But um, a manager like him, with such a storied baseball career, comes to this city, and everybody kind of rallies around that 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 first Nationals team, and grow quite fond of him. Yeah grow quite fond of this team. And that really does kind of cement 
what we see going forward for this franchise because early on people felt ownership of this team. They were there when it when it arrived. Right. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman, this is a great point that you make. I mean, he's kind of like that bridge uh, from that very first team. I believe he was the first draft choice of the Washington Nationals, and he made it up uh, to the major leagues in September after being drafted in June. Uh, and he had always been this incredible you know, face of the franchise. He's not the best player by any means now on the team. He had been for many years. But he's had been in these incredibly dramatic moments. You know, we had one, the, one of the best players they've been having in this last series. That's though. true. He's been, yeah, he's been, he's been on fire lately. And it's be, be great if he has a really, really good World Series. Um, but it's great to see him. It's great to see that connection to that team because, you know, uh, teams, there's so much turnover. It's sometimes, as Jerry Seinfeld famously said, it's like rooting for laundry. When you right. can have guys that stay with a franchise for their whole career, like Ryan Zimmerman it's has, rare. it's rare and it's great. And it, and it really ties. You know, he has been part of the Washington franchise for their entire existence. So how great would that be if he's part of that team? Predates the learners, actually. He does, right? He played for the Major League Baseball. That was his boss. So uh, to park the car here, give me a sense of the bookends of this. Um, Where this city is at right now, what would this mean um, to this sport in Washington, D.C.? Obviously, it's a, a, you know huge <clears throat> success. However, you know the shadow of the Redskins, even in the Redskins' current condition, still does loom large over mm-hmm. the city sports world. Um, obviously, the Capitals have had success uh, recently. Uh, the Wizards' bullets, not as much, but there is a, a championship there within you know the last few decades. Um, what would this mean to baseball in Washington for? Nationals to be able to win a World Series. Well, I think Washington has already proven it's a it's a good baseball city. I don't think there's any danger of the team moving, even if they were really bad. But it does kind of bring things back full circle. You know, it's been 95 years since that first and only World Series championship. Um, if they can, as you point out, book in, I think that's a nice way of putting it, have this other World Series championship on the other end of the century, if you will. Um, you know, that'd be great. And you know, Washington baseball fans are long-suffering fans. Um, I wrote a column uh, a few years ago. This is right before the Cubs had won the World Series. Even had before that, I had argued that Washington fans were, were sort of more long-suffering, more deserving than Cubs fans because it's true that the Cubs had waited longer for a World Series championship. You know, there's, their drought had gone back to 1908. But they had won a pennant as early, in it quotes, as 1945, where Washington had, hadn't won a pennant since 33. We hadn't had a team at all for 33 years, so there's all this angst. And so... I feel like the city's kind of owed it. You know, I feel like they're like the version of the Cubs in 2016 or what, you know, um, another team that hadn't won in a long time. Yeah, and it might not have some cute name like, you know, the Curse of the Goat or the Curse of the Bambino, but I can't think of another city in baseball that has had more inflicted upon Mm -hmm. it by the forces of baseball than Washington, D.C. Yeah, really terrible teams for all that time. And and Washington was really, um, you know, kind of, Major League Baseball had written Washington off as a two-time loser, a team that could not support baseball. So, uh, and, and part of that was because they actually weren't supporting the team, but that was because the team was really bad. Uh, but also, it was a very different city, as you know, back then. It was mm-hmm. not, didn't have the wealth, the education, the size that it does today. Um, so it really, it's, we've already proven that, that MLB had the wrong idea, but it would really put an exclamation point on that if they could win the World Series. All right, go Nats. Go Nats. Go Nats. Fred Farmer is an author and a baseball historian. He's with the Dewey Square Group, and he is the author of You Gotta Have Heart. 
fantastic book detailing Washington, D.C.'s baseball history as uh, we approach a World Series, the city's first since 1933. Fred, we appreciate you coming in and joining us on the Hub. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. That was fun. All right, we thank you for spending part of your day with us from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. This has been the On the Hill Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. Nochebuena. JCPenney. Celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyen de los cupones. Detalles en la tienda JCP.com.